about um, verse 9. Is that right? Chapter 3. Yeah, chapter 3. Okay. And there's, uh, in, in Romans, uh, Paul is now bringing forth this closure from the first two chapters, and he's going to spell out to us that no one is righteous. And that's the heading of where this starts. So I'll read this section. Uh, in verses 9 through to uh, 21. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, <coughs> there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, though, the law, we become conscious of sin. So Paul, in this open court of law, has his opening remarks. Actually, in a sense, God is speaking here in this court. And who's under indictment? The world. Who's under condemnation? Not quite. The word is not um, clear. You get how it's clear. Care Karakrina, thank Karakrina, which is going to be explained in that in actual chapter 8, beginning of that. But no one's complete condemnation. So he kind of holds this in a sense, but it's very condemning here. So God presides in the court of law. This, he ends by saying, um, rather though the law, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law is holding a mirror up to us. And we look into the mirror, and the law shows us our flaws. The law has become um, an, an accusation against us, uh, not fulfilling it. And so we're sitting here, and it says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Remember all the judgments stuff from the other two chapters? Judge not. Uh, 
you, and then it kind of ended in two with, are you circumcised? And the, that makes a sign that you are saved? Or, you know, are you uh, carriers of the law, knowledge of the law? You walk around with the law and you hold it. Are you, are you ever uh, going to be saved that way? How, how can you say that? Because you have disobeyed the law. And so Paul is now saying to each of these Gentiles and Jews alike, are you better than the other one? Are you better? Are you better? Boy, if that isn't something we see today, I see it in myself. Kind of grading the sins in life. Uh, <laughs> seeing, well, I, I know I did this, but I, what about this guy that did this? And so forth. We go back and forth kind of grading things. But now, through this piece of chapter 3, he goes back to the Old Testament. He goes back to what God said. He goes back to the Scriptures. He goes back to what really counts. The, the divine Word of God is what he is bringing in his opening remarks here. And so, there's actually, if I'm not mistaken, um, six scriptures are quoted. First one um, that I have, if, if my commentary was right, is Psalm 14.1. And it's a psalm direct to the director, a Davidic psalm. Fools say to themselves, there is no God. They are corrupt and commit evil deeds. Not one of them practices what is good. So what is he really saying? Before we go to Psalm, the second verse. We can read it. The Lord looks down from the heavens upon humanity and sees to see if anyone shows discernment as he searches for God. The first one is... <coughs> They're lying. They're not telling the truth. The second one is the Lord looks down and sees that they don't have any knowledge. Any, they have the scriptures. They have no understanding as, as they search around for God. They really don't, what? Well, relationship. They don't know God. Third one in this section. All have turned away Together they have become corrupt. No one practices what is good. Not even one. The bells are ringing in Ephesians 6. If we go to Ephesians 6, the armor of God, what is the first one? I gotta go, I don't have it written down, so I gotta go back to it. Ephesians 1, if I'm not mistaken, is the belt of truth. Six. Um, the armor of God. It says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Um, I'm coming down. Let's see where it says. 
stand firm then with the belt of truth. It's the very first one. The second one, I'll just read the second one. Around your waist, or buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. The second verse, which is Psalm 53, 5, there the Israelites were seized with terror when there was nothing to fear, for God scattered the bones of those who laid siege against you. You put them to shame. The Lord rejected them. That's Psalm 53, 5. And that was kind of the, what was the second of these six verses. Third one is Psalm 5, 9. But as for the wicked, they do not speak truth at all. Again, he's still bringing in the truth. Inside them, there is only wickedness. In other words, there's no righteousness. No breastplate of righteousness. Their throat is an open grave, and their tongue is deceitful and flattered. Psalm 143. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent, and the venom of vipers is on their lips. And, Psalm, and that's number three, this is four. And then five, Psalm 10, seven, their mouth is full of curses, lies, and oppression, their tongues spread trouble and iniquity. Not righteousness. Their feet rush to evil, and they are quick to shed innocent blood. And so, in, in uh, Ephesians, the feet, or to spread the gospel of peace. So, kind of brings the Ephesians chapter 6, you know, the, the shield of faith that he calls for later to the Ephesians. But here, these verses are talking about all the things that God has reminded them of. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So whatever, whatever mouth may be silenced and that the whole world is held accountable to God. So he's really hitting on some of the very simple things. What is truth? What is the true things? And so, you know, Sometimes it's hard to stand up. Sometimes it's hard to listen when people are throwing venom at you and telling you that there is no God. How can there be a God? And that everybody has already proven that there is no God, according to them, science and logic and so forth. They've said that. And it's just something you've got to find a way in to to not disprove it. You're not going to argue those points. Because, just like it says, Nahum uh, understands. It says there is no one who understands. He's talking about spiritual things. They can't understand this stuff. When Paul was writing this, we kind of went over this first part a little bit. Um, 
without mentioning the first part, there was some questions he was asking in, in 3, Romans 3. He was asking questions. Uh, what advantage then is there to being a Jew and to being circumcised? What if some did not have faith? These are questions Paul's asking, much like the questions we ask today. We would say, do you have faith? Or what is faith? And, uh, like the other day, Jesse Waters was asking, do you know what this holiday is? It's called Easter. He couldn't answer. Most of them could not answer that question. What One girl stood there and answered, yeah, it's when Jesus was crucified. But all the rest were saying, um, so like the 4th of July, is it this, that, and the other? People do not know who God is. No one understands. And yet, are we supposed to? Another rhetorical question. But Paul's asking these questions. What is faith? Will their lack of faith, you know, he's asking these questions and then he is answering them. The first part of this one, this section. Are we any better? Not at all. That not at all means, are we better? Absolutely not. Is what he's saying. No, not at all. Never will it be ever true that you're better. You're all on equal ground. He's, he's emphatic with this point, but the Bible, the way we get it in the English, sounds a little bit like, not at all. It's not really the way it comes across in the Greek. Not at all. Emphatically, no. So when Paul is asking these questions, the theologians come along and they, they uh, begin to try to read and this was an age of Greek rhetoric. What that means is Greek argument. Greek, uh, well, is it this way or is it that way? And, and Paul is taking on the the the, the the Greek culture of the time. He's taking it on. He says, you're asking these questions? Let me answer it, too. And we don't read it that way sometimes. But when we begin to see him answering his own questions, theologians think he's got a play going on. That he's making like he's asking a question and then he's becoming the other person, what we call a the argumenter, interlocutor they call him, and he answers them back. So he's sounding like he's talking back and forth between two people in what they call rhetoric of the time. It's not what's going on here. He's not making a play for the Greeks to listen to. He's making an appeal to a church in Rome to keep the main thing the main thing. And keep your eyes on who he's talking to here. They are Christian and Jewish. I'm sorry. They're Gentile and Jewish Christians. They are the Christians. They had their problems in their day. Was it going to split the church? No. Not, not if Paul has it. And, and he's holding them together. No, you're not better. 
So when he comes down on this better question and answers it, Gentiles alike are all under the sin. As it is written, he goes back to the Lord. He goes back to the Scriptures. He says, not at all. We, meaning the Jews, have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the sin. Not all under sin. So he he makes a, a clarification on this to the Christians of the day. He's talking to Rome. At the Roman Christians. And so it's somewhat um, interesting to go through some of the the kind of painting odds and ends of pictures. But uh, let me go on to one last scripture, Isaiah 59, 8. The pathway of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their courses. They have made their roads crooked. No one who walks in them will know peace. So he's going to that third axiom or that third element of the shield of faith. Third, there's probably more to this than what I could pull out, but it amplifies Ephesians 6, the shield of faith. And uh, um, uh, and there is no fear before the eyes of God. In Psalm 36, 1 is another one to the director by the servant of the Lord, David. An oracle that came to me about the transgressions of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. What is our verse? Our go-to verse in the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of all wisdom. Right. The fear of God. Do we fear God in the normal sense that we have to hide under a rock? What is this word fear meaning? We mean respect for the Lord. Respect, right. Right. So fear is a little different uh, thinking than we fear in the, in the respect that we uh, have no hope. Not as powerful. He can squash the earth and he's made he's made uh, planets bigger than our solar system. Aren't our whole solar system is smaller than some planets out there. Man. <coughs> so he's, he's a big guy and he is powerful and he is little Little power too. He knows when a bird falls to the ground. He knows the number of the hairs on your head. These are powerful, powerful things. We can't begin to be in little or in the big things. Like our God is just huge. And so the it may seem uh, very black and white, and one must obey the entire law before they were thrown out of the camp. James Ware made a point that even God made provision for atonement. 
and sin. We talked a little bit about this last time. It isn't quite a verdict of death for everybody. It isn't over here. As close to this chapter as it gets to a death sentence, it's not. But it is hard sometimes to see where the hope is coming out at. Where, where is the hope? Paul's making a point. The hope isn't falling in the hands of men. It isn't falling in the hands of someone who's deciding how it works. is isn't going to fall into somebody's precious ability to have faith. That's what he's getting to next. Whose faith? Whose faith is it here? And uh, so let, let me just say that, um, that there are several points to this that are hard to bring out. But um, sin is a consequence of breaking the law. So we've all sinned. So where where is our hope coming from? We can't go through justification somehow of the law, where is this justification going to fall? Uh, and Paul seems to forget or abandon in his understanding of the law this idea that God made provisions in this part of the, of the chapter. He seems to paint a picture clear enough that everybody ought to get it in Rome, that they have to count on something else and not themselves. And that's the point he's getting to here. How a Jew of Paul's um, culture could ignore and by implication deny the great prophetic doctrine of repentance. This is what a guy is saying. Which, individualized and interiorized, was a cardinal doctrine of Judaism. Repentance. Namely, that God, out of love, freely forgives the sincerely penitent sinner and restores him to his favor. That seems, from the Jewish point of view, inexplicable. What this guy is saying, the Jews of the day could not quite understand this. It can't be explained because they have the Day of Atonement. They have all these things that allow them to, that, remember the goat, the blood of the goat was sprinkled on the mercy seat? They had the mercy seat. They had all these things. So wait, 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 wait. How does it work? What happened? What changed? Paul's getting to the change. There's a new covenant in town. There's a new covenant coming. Yes, yes. God hasn't forgot this, and neither has Paul. He has not forgotten that there's a new covenant, that there is a possibility for something. And he's he's a great rhetorical uh, orator, if you will. He he's painted us into a corner. There is no hope in the sense at this point in his text. There is. So, 
Now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. There is nothing for us to say. But wait, wait, wait. Let me let me put in my defense. Uh-uh. No. No defense in this courtroom. None. And Paul's painted it very clear. No defense. No, 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 you know, defense attorneys allowed. They're broke too, by the way. Out. And so, so it goes on. Let's go into this next section a little bit. I'm not sure how far we can get, but it would be maybe partway through this last section. Righteousness through faith. There's actually two or three sections, and uh, let me just go through the section. First part, righteousness through faith. Oh, you mean there is a possibility of righteousness? So here Paul is going to explain a few things. There are some questions here that he answers at the end of this chapter. And there is also in this, uh, let's see my section it, it's a little, it, sometimes it's hard to see the forest from the trees, so you can get a picture of it. Righteousness made justification through faith. And then, after this, there's the final questions. One more second. Well, I don't have it in front of me. So let's read a little further, starting at verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law. Read that again. That is a huge, powerful statement. That's a total turn. This is an enormous turn in the dialogue here. But now, righteousness from God, apart from the law, has made, been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And by the way, this is the Old Testament. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Whose faith? This became a very big point here. This became, what is faith? Faith. You mentioned it before. Faith is, I think it's a Hebrew 11.1, is the 
If we turn to Hebrews 11.1, we can read the definition of, I think it's Hebrews 11.1. And we probably ought to read that again. Um, now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Can you have faith in something other than God? This becomes a problem. Then. If we can have faith in something else, and it says we are saved by faith, faith in what? In our ability to believe, in our intellect to design a way to understand what God is all about because we've read the Old Testament. This becomes the issue then in this part of the section. But let's go back to but now, the righteousness from God. This is where I'm going to kind of stop and ask a question to you. So that you can give me your idea. What is the righteousness of God? He spells it out here in this part of the book. But I mean, what each one of us might. What is the righteousness of God? Righteousness is an attribute of God. It is. Yes. How is it saying that we're putting the question a little differently. How is righteousness of God understood? How do you see His righteousness? Explain His attribute of righteousness. He provided, he provided the way. He provided the way for us to be redeemed. Right. Right. Equally right. Righteousness of God. Is there a word perfect? He probably doesn't do it that good to say perfect because we mess up perfect. Righteousness of God. What happens here? It says in verse 22 even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, is that all of them. All the unmet of labor. There is no difference. Difference in what? I do understand that. That is that is key. This right this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference. All, no difference in anybody. We're all at a equal level. God's righteousness. There's a word promise that's in the righteousness. God is fulfilling what He promised from the from Genesis one on through the whole one. These promises, these meetings, any Eugene, what way in here? <laughs> You have some wisdom here. Do you have an idea of how do you see righteousness? Why do you call me out? Oh, I just want to hear your, your take on righteousness. 
when did you just have to leave Rod and leave for Lola? There you go. There you go. And if you don't feel like you've done something right, you need to correct it. Right. Where does that come from in a person's heart? It comes from your, it comes from what God gives you in your heart to say. And it is. That's what it's saying. Is it God's work or is it our work? It's God's work. God's one speaking us. We understand this pretty good. And we're not perfect, but we, if, but you know yourself, if you may, if you mess up, you know you're in your heart and soul that you messed up and you try to correct it. Holy Spirit is what God is. We can't do it on our own. It's only through the Holy Spirit that we can do it. Is the Holy Spirit righteous? Well, the Spirit is part of God in us. The Holy Spirit is, is part of the God in us. So, the rhetorical, the thing that comes through here is uh, several the discussions on this have an inconsistent, they're inconsistent on the covenant about with Israel and the crystal center. In other words, the Christian's righteousness of God coming only through Christ. This became a very un-Jewish position of the covenant. Let me read that again. This became a very un-Jewish position of the covenant that it was impossible to obtain righteousness through the law. That was impossible. That was inexplicable to the Jewish people of the time. However, there is strong evidence that there is a difference now in post-resurrection first century Judaism. There is strong evidence here that this is now being understood by the Jews. By Hence, chapter 3, Paul uh, proposes that there is no forgiveness in the law for sinners without perfect obedience to it. That's what he's saying. It doesn't matter. It's like Jerry said, one link in the chain and you drop through to the Grand Canyon bottom. Something in Judaism that happened was the Jews had used the exclusivism of circumcision and knowledge of the law, purity laws, and the Sabbath keeping had excluded the Gentiles from God by that basis. They had the law. The Gentiles didn't. Their laws were saved. And Paul's targeting this. His teaching here is of the impossibility of righteousness through what you're claiming, guys. There's a new righteousness that God has fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's fulfilled it. He made a promise, and now He's fulfilling it. Remember? The head of the stake would be crushed, and the seed of the woman, and Jesus is now coming back. There's many, many promises in the Old Testament, not just that. But in the 
the law was explained as a counter to the work-based or merit-based theology characteristics of separate temple Judaism. So they had a merit system. They had a righteousness of their own through works. And Paul, in this court of law, has destroyed So it works. And we, and we still do that today. Come on, we, we still get that mixed up a little bit. I mean, now and then, we know better. I mean, we, we realize that we still get mixed up. But that's all right. Um, no one is righteous. So in this section where it says no one is righteous, for Paul's position, when no righteousness exists apart from Christ, this is Romans 3, 19 to 20. This is 19 to 20 is huge here. And we did not go over a whole lot of that becomes a proposed solution to the inexplicable departure from Judaism. We're departing from the old way to the new. And I'll read Romans uh, or Galatians 2.15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That's in Galatians 2.15. That follows it. Yet we know that a person is not justified by doing what the law requires, but rather by the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. We too have believed in the Messiah, Jesus, so that we might be justified by the faithfulness of the Messiah. It's the second time it said faithfulness of the Messiah. Where whose faith is it? And not by doing what the law requires, for no human being will be justified in doing what the law requires. Can we have faith? So the question becomes, what is he saying in these, in these verses, I think 19 and 20? Um, we may not be this fair either, but who's faith? In other words, when it says, and I'm going to have to look to this a little bit, but this is, um, as this goes through, it is asking, is it faithfulness of Christ, or is it faith in Christ? The interpretation becomes let me just kind of push through this because this was huge. The wording alone in this faithfulness of Christ, quote unquote, uh, in Romans 3, 21 to 26 is where it is, is either translated faithfulness of Jesus, it's called subjective genitive, or faith in Christ, objective which is our own works. In other words, is it our work to have faith that saves us? No. We can't do that. We, oh, the old statement is for me in Jesus. Is it our faith in Jesus, what he did, that saves us? 
or is our faith in the effect of That's why Paul said so many times we are in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. And it becomes very clear to most people reading this that aren't trying to parse out the words, if you will, make the words have a, an exact meaning. Well, simply, put simply, in this wording, putting the emphasis on the importance of human belief on Christ for righteousness, or the importance of stressing the obedience of Christ to Christ, the brutality of the Christ to fulfill the plan of salvation. Okay? In this wording, the emphasis on the importance of human belief on Christ for righteousness, not on ourselves and our faith in Christ. So it's stressing the obedience of Christ. So the faithfulness of Christ to go to the cross to accomplish what God's plan was is what Paul's talking about here in the faith. Like to beat me up in a lot of ways to understand this is exactly what they're talking about here. So where does our faith come in? Right? Yeah, I knew you'd answer. Yeah. You you have added that it's a faith that's given to us. It's given. It's it's imbued in us. It's it pours out of us because of what work he's done in us. Okay. Go ahead. My version, I'm reading out of the ESV. It says uh, in verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So pretty good. Um, and Paul says this one. Yes. Dr. McGee brought this out. I've got a little small print. I can hardly see it. Um, Therefore, we conclude that man is, ju man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. To me, that just grabbed hold of me. It's gotten to be the summing up um, that third chapter there. And one of those deeds was our ability to have faith. One of those deeds is our ability to have faith. We are given faith through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. We get how does that happen? It ought to just put us in awe of God. How did that happen? You know, it happened. It happened. It's, it, it's His work. He, we are the miracle. We are the miracle that He's wrought in us. And so we hold on to this faith. What do we have? We have Christ. We are in Christ. We have faith in Christ. Go out now and try to lose that. Not here is the loose. Go out and try <clears throat> Here comes a car. Here, hit me and it's gone. I don't think so. We have it in our, in our ability. And we have it because going back to this, that no one understands. But now we see. We may not, we have knowledge. Love God with our heart soul, your mind. Because we know. We know. Why? Why? He's got to put it in his strength. He's done it for us on the cross. We die on 
in salvation because of Christ. And believe me, these people didn't get it back then. They were fighting all over the place trying to grapple with this in this hugely Greek logic and era of discussion and philosophy, if you will. They were fighting this. And they were seeing, seeing that they couldn't quite get it either. But Paul has won this battle of rhetoric, this battle of explaining this. The question is, will they see, will they see this come together as a church? And will the Christian faith survive 100 AD, 200 AD, 300 AD, 400 AD, 5 Constantine, not 400, 300. But 400 AD, 500 AD, 600 AD, I'm not going to go on any further, but I could. It survived. Why? Because the truth does survive. And the truth in this whole thing is that it's God's truth. It's God's promise. It's been fulfilled. We have it in our hands in the Word of God. We have this and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to have. The words, we don't have to go off on a tangent and try to parse out words. It's pretty clear. And I have written here, beside my verse, and I'm going to read the verse again. Remember, the famous verse is 3. Uh, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And right beside it is 623. That's the next one on the Roman road. <laughs> so, so when you don't know, put the little tags in your book so you can walk somebody through the Roman road and it, and it ends up in Revelation, pardon me, and all over the place. But anyway, what's cool is that Paul has successfully got us to understand the doctrine here of, of justification. At least the starting point. Where does it end? We're going to have justification for the next four or five chapters. Anyway. So, is there any questions or any I don't know, Jeremiah say it's not the strength of our faith, but it's the object of our faith. Yeah. Do you have something to read? Actually, I was looking at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. I'll start at verse 6 because it's a little easier to understand. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jealous of play to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Excuse me, that was 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. 
it starts at verse 6 and then goes through the end of verse 7. Okay. That's a good way to put it. I mean, that's a better, way better way to put it. So, any other comments? Any other thoughts? We have a very powerful chapter in chapter 3 that, you know, I don't know if the person can do it justice to. Look it over again, and um, we're not through it all yet. But um, um, where then is boasting is the next part. He asks, he asks five last questions here at the end of this chapter. Five questions. That seldom does the scriptures ask the audience question, the reader a question. Uh, this is different a little bit too. So we'll get into the questions. I'm sure Jerry you know, uh, wanted to go back over this uh, chapter three a little bit with y'all too, because that there's uh, way more here. Really. So any other thoughts? There's a lot to it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we got into a whole. And then he got into the attributes of um, salvation, what is positive about our salvation. But I don't have his I don't have his book with me. But he named a whole bunch of, of things. One thing uh, of salvation gives us joy. That was one of the points that he brought out. But I, I haven't got his book with me, so I'll have to go back and study it. Yeah. Then I was handicapped a little bit on the staff there, and I just came off the work. <laughs> There's a lot more. I read a lot more, and it's just some of it is is uh, commentary that is really um, different pieces of the entire chapter that would probably take a week to cover. So I tried to get it. In, and Let's pray and turn it out and dismiss. Father God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for just glad to be here. We're glad to see how some of the scriptures went back to the Old Testament from the New Testament and that you have given us promises and then we see how those are fulfilled. We thank you for your uh, finished work of your son on the cross that we might be saved. That it, it was said in the word to telestai which meant paid in full. And so not anything we would have done but we were, we were all sinners. And your scriptures has given us the understanding that you paid it in full that we might be saved, that we might have uh, a means of justification through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now we ask you to go with us, have us appreciate this, have us tell the story uh, to those around us. And we thank you and praise you for all the saints of Christ our words.